if you raise a two-year round, right, you have about two years of runway, and you're, you're kind of iterating once a month, that means you have 24 shots on goal. That is not a lot. You're probably going to miss a ball. But if you're, if you're doing it every week, then now you have 104. And that still makes, means each week is 1% of your time has just poof, gone away. So you better hope that you're moving fast because that 1% sneaks up on you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, man. Um, season two of the Bell Curve. I think what we're episode three uh, into season two. You are the founder and CEO of Winley, and I feel like I'm seeing you like all over my like Instagram and like TikTok feed right now. So uh, I feel like I already know quite a bit about your company even before talking to you. Yes, thanks so much for having me on, Jake and Tom. I appreciate it. You know, the algorithms are good at pushing people. So once you you probably loaded me up. You probably loaded up our, our stuff, and then we it's just pushing us on you so much. I mean, I know that's true because I looked you all up on LinkedIn, and now I see all of Tom's updates. You know? <laughs> day. I, I'm for here for better it. or for worse. <laughs> it was kind of cool. Before we started recording, we should have recorded. You were giving us like a little master class on like YouTube and like TikTok analytics, and we got to see some of your data. It's pretty strong. So um, hopefully that's translating into good good revenue for you, and we can. Uh, show some of that for your investors on your next round if you want. <laughs> we'll have to attribute it all back to this podcast. I'm actually I'm ringing I'm actually, the bell a few years from now. I'll just say. There we go. Make sure you invite us. I would love to go. I feel like CNBC, uh, I'm in commercial real estate, and I feel like CNBC is just always on in the background, like at work. And it's either I'm having a great day or just really depressing, depending on like which color the uh, the numbers are every day Absolutely. today was good it was green so <laughs> we're having a good day Someone's so i uh, get jerome powell on it yeah <laughs> <laughs> one more rate hike baby one more 25 <laughs> bips that's what we're shooting for <laughs> all right so uh, this is gonna get real wonky <laughs> if we don't get off the off the interest rate <laughs> no, no, no no we're good we're good um, he definitely watches the show. Okay. So Akash, where, where are you calling in from, man? What city? Yeah, I'm in New York city. Sweet. Um, you know, I got here through a circuitous path. I'm from, I'm from a suburb of Virginia beach, which is a city about three hours South of DC. If you're driving, um, grew up in Virginia, went to the university of Virginia and then ended up in the Bay area in FinTech. So I was a software engineer. That's just kind of what I was doing. And I started realizing that there's a lot you can do with technology and specifically software to drive user adoption and just get people actually using your product, right? So it's not so much software for building something new, but software to kind of increase uh, the usage of whatever you're building, um, increase access, really mm -hmm. democratize uh, whatever you're doing. Um, a great example of that, honestly, is Robinhood, right? They're like, man, stock trading should be as easy as opening an app on your phone. Now, the outcome of making it that easy is a whole nother podcast. But uh, but yeah, that's like a great example of like using software and kind of focusing on engineering to drive adoption. Um, the woman I was dating, I'd met her in college, 
and she was up in New York City, and I realized that if I wanted to get serious about my life, I also needed to be in New York City, and so I moved to New York City, um, worked at a company called Parsley Analytics, kind of doing the same thing, and then during the pandemic, I was working with my co-founder, who's, who was also my cousin, on helping him kind of digitize his medical practice, and that's kind of where Wimbley came out of. So that's how I find myself in New York City. Yeah. Nice. And, and, and for, for the listeners, what is Wimbley? Yeah. So what we do at Wimbley is we fix allergies permanently. And the way we do that is we send you personalized medicine that actually trains your immune system to stop reacting to its allergy triggers. So the same way you might train for a marathon, if you hadn't run before, we kind of train your immune system how to handle the pollen in the spring or a cat if, you, if you're allergic to cats, that type of stuff. What's really interesting is that this isn't new science. This is something that you could get at Johns Hopkins or at Emory, these large research universities, but access really wasn't there. Mm. And that's why, you know, that's why I joined forces with my co-founder because he's kind of handling the medical side and I'm kind of bringing it to the people. Akash, what, what was the access issue? You know, was it just appointment availability? Is it awareness? Um, Cause yeah, it, it sounds Everything you described makes so much sense, uh, but yeah, what was the issue that you, you guys really found in your, your market research? Yeah, absolutely. I think it really is just awareness and hmm. availability. You really hit the nails on the head. So first off, when people think they have allergies, the only information that they've really been told is get an antihistamine, you know, take a pill, and it'll take care of you. Hmm. If you have really, really bad allergies, which millions and millions of people do, this gets you from like zero to 50. So you can kind of like stumble through the day, but it doesn't actually make you feel better. It doesn't make you feel like you woke up and you're ready to take on the day and you can breathe and you can operate the way you want to operate. So it, it, it's like a chronic condition where you just have to think about it all the time um, during allergy season. And what we also found out is these chronic allergy sufferers, for them, allergy season was most of the year. <laughs> it wasn't just two or three weeks in March or April. It was something in the spring, something in the summer, something in the fall. Mm. And then when your body is that reactive to allergies, you're probably allergic to something indoors too. <laughs> so there's not really any escape. I mean, that was me personally, right? So like I was someone that, you know, I had pollen allergies, but then I also had a cat allergy and a dust allergy and I didn't realize it was solvable. Yeah. Uh, and so that kind of goes down. So that's the awareness angle, right? Even I didn't know you could take care of this. Um, but then on the flip side, it's the access. So usually the specialty that takes care of this and does what we do is allergists and immunologists. You know, this is a treatment that they'll give you. Immunotherapy, if you go in, they'll give you allergy shots. But getting to an allergist is really difficult. Um, for me, I would have had to go to my general practitioner, then I need a referral. And there's only one, there's like 5,000 allergists in total, but there's 85 million people with really bad allergies. Mm. So there's kind of a supply-demand imbalance right there. Um, and what we really found out is people are just giving up on that path. And they're saying, forget about it. This is too difficult. I, I'm just going to take my antihistamine and suffer. Hmm. Um, but what we found out is with, our, with what we provide, which is this incredible treatment completely at home, uh, we've kind of reduced how much effort it takes. And so people are much more willing to kind of try it out and realize that, wow, I could have a life without allergies. There's like a fundamental step change in how I can experience the world. 
So kind of preparing for the episode, I counted. Uh, I suffer from allergies as well. Um, so knowing you were going to come on today, I counted how many times I sneezed in the office. Um, and Tom, guess if it was over and under 15. For you, I've lived with you for years. <laughs> yeah, it was like 30, dude. It was like, it was like yeah. I was dying. I don't know what is going on here. Even but, in so uh, many countries, you get like those machine guns all over the map, you know? It's all whacked out. <laughs> Do you get those machine gun sneezes that are just like boom, 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 boom? Or is it yeah, just I'll... like one big one? No, I get them three in a row. Yep. Yep. <laughs> are you going to break down the science <laughs> for us? One of our uh-huh. first. Well, one of our first, uh, like, there's so, what we really realize, and my co-founder is, like, one of the ethos, uh, one of the one of the reasons we started the company is because it was so hard to get access to this information because people just weren't getting in front of allergists, right? We already discussed how they were kind of uh, quitting out on the process beforehand. Um, you know, my co-founder is also an allergy specialist. He was doing this treatment in his office, and I literally sat him down, and I was like, hey, these are, like, 100 questions. Just answer them on video the way you would answer for one of your patients. And let's just put it out into the world and see what happens, right? So you ta- you asked about like market validation and market research, Tom. I'm not a top-down market research kind of guy. I'm not looking for, I'm not looking for like uh, big analytics, uh, big analysis on, oh, this is how big it is. This is how many people are affected. I'm just very much like, what's actually gonna respond to people? Let's just put it out there and see what happens. And the very first thing that kind of went viral for us and for us viral was like at the time, just 500 views was uncontrollable sneezing. And they're still like one of our best performing videos because people literally, (laughs) people literally probably have these huge sneezing effects, sneezing fits. And then they ask their phone, why can't I stop sneezing? (laughs) Um, And they find out that there's actually a medical reason behind it. Uh, Tom, you asked about the science. Really what it comes down to is your body thinks, your immune system thinks of the allergens as foreign, and it kind of goes into hyperdrive trying to wash it out and kind of get rid of it. Um, it's yeah. actually a lot more scientific than that, but I leave the the hard science to my co-founder. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just love that you're solving this this fundamental issue, right? There's so many things that we don't understand well, and allergies being one. Um, but so many people think that like the first line for you is get a surgery, get these really expensive shots. But like what I'm hearing is there are other options and options that people might not ever see, might not pursue, but that might make the most sense for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what it is. So oh, we saw that our patients our our customers fell into two buckets. One bucket is people who knew they had really bad allergies, but weren't ever able to make the traditional medical system really work for them. Um, and so these are the folks who had just resigned themselves to antihistamines. The other bucket is folks who did make it to the allergist, but then they, they, you know, the traditional, uh, the traditional treatment allergy shots requires going into the doctor's office every week for a shot in the arm for five years. Right. And that's because they're building up this resistance. They're desensitizing your immune system. I don't know about you guys, but I haven't been in one place for five years since literally I was in high school. And when I was in high school, my mother was not going to drive me to a doctor's office every week. <laughs> so it's just that that treatment, allergy shots, isn't a fit for most people's lifestyles, right? Um, if you travel or 
you know, if you're going to move ever in the next five years, because a lot of times you can't find another allergist to take care of you. Um, so folks, it's like folks who had explored it, but really hadn't, um, hadn't committed with their allergist. And our treatment, it's a under the tongue drop, right? So we have the exact same thing you would get at the allergist. But instead of an injection, you're taking it underneath your tongue, you're taking it at home. It's just a drop. There's no shots. Uh, this is a treatment that you would get if you had went to these more academic hospitals where the um, you'd get at these more academic research centers like Johns Hopkins or Emory. I think it's at most places. It's called sublingual immunotherapy, but it just wasn't easy to get. Like It wasn't easy to discover is really what it was because you still had to get in front of an allergist, um, and that's the hard part. Uh, so what we found out is we've just you know, we're just answering questions. We're like unlocking this knowledge. And most of the allergy stuff you find online is very high level. But if you wanted something deeper, you weren't able, act, able to actually find that answer, right? So it's like, you know, a lot of times people were just seeing that WebMD or whatever, and it just wasn't giving them, it wasn't really serving their needs as, uh, as searchers or as like people with questions. Um, and so that's kind of where we found the way we validated that concept, by the way, is we literally went onto Reddit and saw who's still asking questions, hmm. right? Because Reddit, if you think about it, it's so bonkers that people went onto the internet and were just like yelling into the void, hey, I have bad allergies. I don't know what to do. And this still happens, right? So that, that, that really proved to us that like people weren't getting the information they needed. So we're going to lead with, we're going to just kind of increase access and then we have kind of a treatment that's going to help them. So it's I, effectively an underserved community. I'm sorry. Nice. So it was like, I'm someone who like suffers from pollen um, and like is just sneezy, watery eyes. Like it's kind of uncomfortable. The roof of my mouth is kind of itchy, stuff like that. Um, I take an antihistamine. It doesn't work. I think I might be like immune to the antihistamine. Um, so I take like Zyrtec. Well, why haven't you gone and seen a doctor, man? Yeah. Well, uh, now I'm kind of like, what what do I do? I, I can't go to, I, like, I'm not going to go to the doctor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you have like a healthcare podcast. You have to go to a yeah, doctor. Yeah, like, I'm just like, I'm not going to go to the doctor or get a shot in my arm, kind of to your point. It's like, I'm just too busy. Um, and so it's like, like, all okay, so I'm like one of those guys that, like, has a prescription for keeps, right, for my hair. Like, the all all that, like, once all those patents went away, hair. like, I order all the, all the stuff to my house. Um, so I think this is going to have to be into the lineup. Okay. So if I buy like a Winley product to get rid of my allergies, cause I, uh, start weirdly started suffering from it. Like as an adult, like five years ago, it wasn't even something I had as a kid. Um, how long after like, I guess going through the, the therapy or, or the treatment, whatever, whatever it is that technically yeah. it's called until I'm starting to kind of like. Uh, see some relief. See this is kind of more in a bit yeah. of, of, a, of an investment where I'm putting like a year into it or, or like the hair pills, right? Like the, what's it called? The the stuff that's Finestra. Propecia, the generic stuff that you get from Keeps now. Um, yeah. It's like three months before you see anything. And sometimes I forget three to months. take the pill. Yeah. That's um, crazy. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can definitely answer that. So one, it's actually not unusual to develop allergies as you grow older. Mostly like Allergies are your body changing its reaction to stuff that's being exposed to it, right? So if you've developed 
resistance, maybe you moved. Maybe you changed where you were. And then when you returned home, returned to your original location, your body has kind of lost that resistance. Alternatively, you know, if you move from the East Coast to the West Coast or the West Coast to the mm-hmm. East Coast, you're literally in a different environment. Um, and so we, it's really not that uncommon. And then, like, as we get older, our bodies do weird things. Your immune system's gone through a lot these past through few years. So uh, <laughs> um, it's not that unusual. We actually get a lot of folks who are like, I think what's most interesting is we get people who get who had cats when they were young, then they went off to school and they weren't able to have a cat in their apartment building or in dorms or whatever. And then they got a cat when they were when they were finally like maybe, you know, 28 or 29. And they're like, oh, no, I'm allergic. Well, it's because your body hasn't attenuated to it yet. Um, you know, those people can try kind of self-testing out this theory, uh, this treatment that you can build that immunity. Um, Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So what you what you would do, the Windley experience really, is you'd come to our website uh, and then you would purchase a diagnostic. So what the diagnostic tells us, it's an allergy test, right? And it literally tells us exactly what you're allergic to. So for me, I'm allergic to New York pollen, I'm allergic to cats, I'm allergic to dogs, and I'm also allergic to uh, a rye grass, right? So um, you know what the diagnostic would do, it, we would ship it to your home, you would... Uh, take it. It requires one single finger prick of your finger. Uh, you'd mail it to our certified lab. Uh, and then with the diagnostic, we would get the information on, okay, this is exactly what Jacob is allergic to. Uh, unfortunately, the, what we get back from the lab is just a bunch of gibberish numbers. And I don't want to give you gibberish numbers. That doesn't help me communicate with you. That doesn't help me give you a healthcare experience that's a thousand percent better than what you'd usually get. So we actually create a custom visualization just for Jacob that you can have. So regardless of whether or not you start with us, you have something that tells you, this is what I'm allergic to. This is exactly how allergic I am. and something you can hold on to and take to whatever doctor you want. Um, That's fair. Allergy tests generally have like two to three years of, allergy tests generally have like two or three years of like, uh, before you kind of need to get retested. So you have that diagnostic. We match you up with one of our doctors and our doctors will have built you a custom treatment plan, right? So you could kind of go through your options. And then this last one we would say is like, well, we can put you on immunotherapy. Once you're on immunotherapy, it takes about six weeks for most of our patients say six weeks is when they start seeing results. Um, And so for a lot of our patients who have very bad allergies, that means like instead of having 30 sneezes in a day, they might just have five, five to 10. (laughs) Um, And then at six months is when they kind of forget that they have allergies. Uh, what's really interesting is we've been around since 2021, so we've had patients that are on this treatment for two treatment for two years now. And I was just talking to one yesterday, and he's like, "Yeah, I totally forgot that I had allergies." And I, he was like sifting through an old bag of his, and he's like, "It was just full of antihistamines, and I just threw them out because I don't need them anymore." And I think that's like that's really what we want for you for you to forget that like allergies were ever something you ever had to think about. Nice. So, um, if, so six weeks to start seeing results. About six months until like, is it I'm allergy free or? But I don't think cure. Six months until word. you feel like. Uh, six it. months until you feel like you don't have any allergies, and then after that, we're kind of locking in the change, right? So the science really shows that if you were just to stay on it for a year, you'd have allergy relief for a year, and then three years you're probably going to have allergy relief for a decade. If you were on it for five years, you could probably get multiple decades out of it. Hmm. Um, but we see that most people kind of want the three-year option. If you went in to see a traditional allergist, they would suggest you come in for five years. 
five years. Wow. Okay. And so in terms of the space that you chose, Akash, this is so interesting. Uh, why immunotherapy and uh, why cash pay? Yeah. And like direct to consumer. It's a tough space. But yeah, what drew you into it? Absolutely. Well, I think first there's this idea that like you should do what you know. My co-founder was doing allergy treatments in his office. So it was obvious that we were going to start with something with allergy. He's a ENT and ear, nose, and throat doctor. So he was gonna, we were going to do something around the respiratory system. Uh, we just didn't know what exactly. And then what we really found out is we realized that there's no reason for someone to take a chance on something new unless it's vastly better than other options, right? So, and, and then healthcare, that's like twice as real. Like that, that's, that, that's, that's twice as true because no one wants to chance anything with their health and I wouldn't want anyone to chance anything yeah. with their health. Um, so we, we really sat down and it was like, of all the things that my co-founder, Dr. Shah knows how to treat, what can we actually build an exceptional experience around? Something that is so much better, people would never want to go back to the traditional health system. And what we realized is that a lot of the negative experiences in healthcare are a function of insurance. Insurance gets in between the doctor and the patient a lot of the times and kind of says, you know, fight with us to make, to like actually like make us believe that you deserve this treatment. Make us believe that uh, this procedure is medically necessary, right? And then a lot of the negative experiences just come from that. The surprise medical bill six months down the line, the denial of coverage up front, right? It's just, it's just a bunch of nonsense that we were able to avoid by saying, you know what, we're just going to do this cash pay. What we found out is that fundamentally aligns interests. So everything we do as care providers has to be in the patient's interest because if the patient doesn't believe in us or if the patient doesn't trust us, they're just not going to commit to the treatment. And we're not going to have, like as a business, we're not going to have revenue. We're not going to be able to um, continue existing. And the side effect of that is we started taking ownership for so much that was outside of our control, right? If, if our email system goes down for whatever reason, that's a us problem now. We can't, we can't say, oh, it's someone else's problem. Uh, if <laughs> if uh, the pharmacy that we're using for that, 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 that patient is working with um, happens to have a delay that week, that still becomes an us problem. So what we, what we started doing is just taking over more and more of the healthcare experience, the, the experience around this immunotherapy and just saying, we can make that better and we can make it so much better that patients are going to want to work with us. Um, and that's effectively what happened, right? So this is why we have unlimited doctor access. So Jake, you know, we didn't mention it, but when you're on the treatment, you know, we're, you can text us, you can call us, we have an app. Most, more than likely, you have like a preferred way of communicating and we've removed all the friction necessary. So you can talk to us however you want. You can talk to us however much you want, right? So we have patients who are like, hey doc, I'm going to, you know, hiking this weekend, what should I do? And we're like, well, you'll probably be fine, you know, but just stay safe. And here's a few extra stuff. Here's a prescription if you need it for uh, a poison IV ointment. <laughs> so mm. we've really just taken so much ownership of the care that we provide. Um, and it's all a function of being so focused on, like, if you're cash pay, you can't say, oh, it's insurance's fault. It's always our fault. Um, and so the reason we chose cash pay is because, like, 
that's why we chose cash pay when we started just really digging into that incentive alignment um and then if you're cash pay the only way you're going to get patients is going direct to consumer so uh akash have you heard of uh mark cuban's kind of uh pharmaceutical company or cost plus drugs have you heard of this company mm-hmm. yeah. is, is that what they're doing is basically they are able to get medicines like cheaply and they go cash pay like directly to consumers and just give this... i'm not sure how they operate gotcha um, but maybe that's exactly <laughs> what it is right like uh they're kind of cutting out the middleman they might be buying wholesale um and then that kind of lets them control their margins i think what amazon did recently which is like a five dollar subscription for most generics is really interesting um but yeah like i mean we saw with california that the state of california is like you know what we're gonna make our own insulin and suddenly eli Lilly, who actually manufactures the insulin across the states is like actually we can drive costs down surprise (laughs) jeez man also, what are the similarities and differences, right? Because what I do know about Mark Cuban's business, Cost Plus, which is funny when you speak with like, a, you know, just some random um, person at a, you know, an outing on a Friday night, it feels like everybody knows Mark Cuban's business, Cost Plus, you know? And what's funny is they say, oh, you know, I, I know about that and therefore I buy from them. It seems like very much a marketing game because you're connecting something, people to something they might already have access to elsewhere, but they can just more readily access cost plus drugs because they know the website, they've seen the ad. So how much is it like a marketing game, Akash, between like, you know, what you guys do and what everyone else does? I think what we've really seen is that uh, the internet has allowed people to directly access medical care. Like it used to be there were a lot of gatekeepers in healthcare. And a lot of the times that gatekeeper was the general practitioner because the individual, the patient just didn't know what was wrong with them. They didn't know how to get their own diagnostics, uh, not even didn't know. They literally weren't able to. Um, nowadays, you can kind of, if you really want, you can order, order an MRI for yourself through some specialty, uh, specialty um, hmm. care, um, specialty care practices. I wouldn't necessarily suggest that. It doesn't, it's kind of expensive, but you could do it. <laughs> Uh, and so once the gatekeeper has been removed, you can go direct to consumer and you can say, Hey, this is something that you're allowed to do. You're allowed to have that direct access. Um, marketing is an interesting term because I think there's always been marketing in healthcare. It's just a question on who has the marketing marketing been towards, right? Is it been towards providers or has it been towards, uh, the end users who are the patients? Good point. Um, right. I mean, there was that there was a law passed uh i think about 20 years ago like solely around like you know these pharmaceutical companies can't take doctors to the bahamas and give them an all expense paid vacation and have all these kickbacks uh to encourage doctors to prescribe um and i think that's you know that's that's a good change in the system to make sure that everyone is keeping the patient's benefit in mind instead of a personal benefit definitely that's awesome. No, I, I appreciate you kind of walking us through um, like the technical parts of your business in terms of really what problems that it's solving. I'm going to order from you guys tonight because I am dying over here and, and histamines aren't doing anything. Um, and I'll let you know how it goes. I'll post an update even on like our, our website and see and let, like, let people know like uh, that that's kind of worked well. 
Uh, but I want to know more and kind of dig into like the business of Winley. So like now kind of shifting gears, you know, put your like business founder hat on, you know, you've had the opportunity to actually go through a Y Combinator cohort and, you know, you're kind of now a part of this uh, like mainstream startup culture. And you probably know a lot of folks that are talked about like in the media and uh, different things like that. So that's kind of cool. You've even gone like uh on Alex Lieberman's podcast and you know, like your little segment did really well. Um, and like that's, we, we had, I think we connected when you were still at Y Combinator and then we saw your ads and then we saw you like pop off uh, with morning brew stuff. And we're like, Oh crap, we got to bring this guy on and here you are. But we definitely want to dig into like more of that stuff. Cause like that's cool stuff too. A lot of our listeners are um, really going to be interested and want to know, um, what that experience was for you. So starting off first, you know, you start the business in 2021. Uh, I see on your LinkedIn profile, you went through a 2021 cohort of Y Combinator. So probably pretty early out the gate from the time that you guys started your business. How do you decide to go to Y Combinator and kind of just walk us through your experience there? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, you know, my co-founder and I started kind of testing out the concept with his existing patients. And our entire approach to this business is like, we probably have a hypothesis on what the truth actually is, and then we should just test it. And you just have to test quickly because more than likely we're wrong. (laughs) Um, uh, And what we've really seen is that in the modern day, that kind of feedback loop is really, really fast. So, you know, my co-founder, so in 2020, my co-founder is my cousin. Uh, at the same time, he's talking. He's running his ENT clinic. He calls me up. He's like, "How do I, like, how do I digitize this practice? How do I make it so my patients have to come in less?" And so I kind of help him set that up. And we realize that wait, this treatment that we're doing, uh, this immunotherapy, let's see if we can ship it to patients instead of patients coming in into the office. And that was something that was possible. Then we're like, how can we start patients instead of having them come into the office? Well, this allergy diagnostic that we were using, it's what, it's what um, you know, it's clinically proven. It's been used in lots of other practices. Uh, it's suggested to use with people who don't, might not want a traditional allergy test. Let's see if we're comfortable prescribing off that. And we were. And so once we realized that the product was something that existed and we were able to fulfill, you know, it was about testing out the market. So we set pretty, like the earliest thing we did, I kind of alluded to it earlier, is we went onto Reddit and we just answered questions for people to see who's gonna respond to this. Will people want to meet with us? Um, And I think we had a very simple, you know, I I hesitate to even call it a landing page. It was kind of just like book a time with a doctor. Um, (laughs) And it's not gonna be a medical visit because we didn't necessarily wanna jump through the hoops on well, is someone licensed in that state or this or that? So we like we had a lot of disclaimers saying like you're going to be speaking with a doctor, but he's not going to be your doctor, and this is not medical advice. Um, you know, the same way you might talk to somebody if you ran into them in an airplane and they were seated next to you is kind of the concept we were going for, and we just had people respond to that. Right after we had about 20 people just book a time with my co-founder, I was like, there's something here. What can we do with that? To get serious, we applied to Y Combinator. Thankfully, they let us in. And what Y Combinator really did is it unlocked a lot of, it literally unlocked the business because the 
the network is just massive, right? I think there's 4,000 founders in Y Combinator. I don't know how many of them are active versus inactive, but generally people are willing to say, oh, you're in Y Combinator. You are probably working hard. Take a call with me. I'll make sure you're working hard and then I'll share my network with you. Um, and so literally Y Combinator is how we were able to find many more doctors who were licensed across the states. And we were able to find, uh, like we were able to talk to the right lawyers so that we could operate across the states correctly. And this is just the type of stuff that would have taken us months and months and months, but Y Combinator really shortened that feedback loop, right? Uh, and yeah, we launched, you know, so we were accepted late 2020, we launched in January 2021, and then I think ever since then, it's just been continuing that, like, how quickly can we, like, come up with new ideas, validate an idea, and then operationalize an idea. Uh, and so I think that's, like, the approach. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. I'm so sorry. I like it. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's yeah. money. The question is, was Y Combinator worth it? Is Y Combinator worth it? I think... The answer is unequivocally yes. I don't know why people would say no. Why Combinator? Why Combinator? You know what it really is. If you're a good founder, if you're someone who is able to take the like take the reins in your hand and drive it yourself and take ownership, and if you're given resources, take make the most out of them. Why Combinator will always be worth it. If you're waiting for someone to tell you what to do, to kind of teach you to say, we know what's best and you should just kind of follow the path that we laid out, then I don't think Y Combinator is worth it. Because they're not, they don't act, and they say this explicitly, which is like, we're not gonna run your company for you. There's too many companies that we've invested in and we don't know enough. But what we can do is pattern match you and we can connect you with the right people and we can provide you this huge network and our legitimacy so that when you go out looking for answers, you're able to find those answers. Um, and I think that is kind of, there's the right person is able to take those raw resources and turn them into very, very successful companies. Um, I think what's really interesting is people are like, oh, well, the knowledge isn't worth that much. Yeah, the knowledge isn't worth that much because they already shared it with the world, right? Everything that the partners are going to tell you, they've already said hundreds of times. There's literally a library. They're probably on YouTube. They've probably been quoted over and over. Um, you're not joining Y Combinator to get their advice. You're joining Y Combinator for, um, for that network and that community, and also Demo Day, which mm. is still considered a great place to kind of launch a company. So I think for folks who haven't founded a company before, there's a lot of like there's some nuance to what you said. Um, so you're basically saying Y Combinator is a great place if you know you are basically taking full ownership of the business, its path, stuff like that. Um, why Combinator should be treated as basically a resource or like rocket fuel to what you're doing. And really, when you really break down what rocket fuel is or and kind of what it really takes your company to succeed and start to see like that um, growth rate really start to compound, you're having to, I think a lot of founders underestimate how many problems you have to solve um, in succession and how long you have to do that for. And a lot of the times uh, I did a healthcare startup too. That was my first startup. I didn't go to Y Combinator. I wish I did because we needed more guidance. Uh, but we had the luxury of uh, initialized investing in our company. So we still had access to Gary Tan, who's now the president of Y Combinator. And, you know, a lot of that 
of those principles and fundamentals when we met with them on our monthly call were like, okay, you guys need to focus. You need to do this. Here's some things to think about. And then ultimately the thing that was the most helpful was um, what they would do on our calls. It would be like, okay, like you have a good idea. You're like smart enough to get to this point, but I need for me to open up my network to you, even though we invested in your company, we need to see how far you get in the next 30 days, like go. Um, and we would quickly kind of brainstorm, put a plan together. You know, they were always accessible via email call, stuff like that. And then, you know, we would display, okay, here, here are basically our metrics. It was like a little mini board meeting, very quick. Um, and from there, then it was like, okay, based off the results and this, this, and this, um, I'm going to intro you to this person. This person could be really helpful. This problem that you're trying to solve, this guy knows the answer. Go talk to this guy. And then literally right after the call, the intro was set up and then go. Okay. Before we had that, sometimes my days would just be like, crap, I need to talk to somebody. And it would take me a day or two just to like game plan, write the cold email, and then send it to 10 people that I thought maybe had the answer and then do the whole dance of like setting up like a calendar invite and then having that at the end of the week. So it's like I lose a week like just trying to solve yeah. like a hard problem that my business needs to solve to get to the next step. The cool part about like plugging into these networks these that have really strong communities around them that give you like that validation, like Y Combinator probably being the best. Um, you know, you say Techstars is good too, but I still don't think it's as good as Y Combinator in terms of its community is you could solve it that day or the next day. Um, right. Just because of the access that you have to folks who uh, are going to have the answer or maybe give you some things to think about so you can go like, okay, I am now able to connect the pieces, the different vectors that I have in my head that I need to connect, put it all together and then ship it. Um, so for, you know, folks who are kind of like trying to understand the value, kind of like MBA, Tom, it's like a lot of people to to your point is like, oh, yeah. why do I need to go get a business degree? Everyone who gets a business degree says the community and the network is the most valuable thing that you get out of the experience. And it's like, well, why am I paying 120 grand to like go and make friends? That's like, well, it's there's there's more to it than that, right? Um, and I've tried to explain like why that's so valuable and how much time it literally saves you because you need to solve a hundred problems just to like get to the point where you're really starting to get some consistency and grow. And if it takes you a week to solve each problem because you need to go talk to somebody and research it and, you know, you come up with a hypothesis, you try to validate it, and then, like, you try to operationalize operationalize that, you got to do that fast enough so you don't run out of money. And so it's like – That's if, literally it. Yeah, yeah. if you don't yeah. do it fast enough, you're screwed. <laughs> You've got a business. And so – Well, I – I think a really interesting way to put it, it one you totally hit the exact reason why people fundraise a lot of the times it's to unlock these faster feedback loops and like just faster cycles of getting stuff done on the flip side you also said like it wasn't going to happen unless you asked the right questions right so i think you said like literally like if you had your um your little board meeting or your mini update and you weren't asking the right questions they just say come back to me when you have something worth sharing, right? When you have a real problem, uh, you know, but that sort of validation, like that's how people protect their own social capital, right? Like why, why should someone open up their network to you and risk, you know, their, their references if, if you as a founder aren't going to m like make them look good. Um, 
And so I think that's one reason you you want to work fast as a founder. I think another reason, and like this really hits it with uh, this, you know, you're running out of money, but but I think this makes it like super, super clear. Uh, if you raise a two-year round, right, you have about two years of runway and you're, you're kind of iterating once a month, that means you have 24 shots on goal. That is not a lot. Yeah. Uh, you're probably going to miss them all. <laughs> uh, but if you're, if you're doing it every week, then now you have 104. And that still makes, means each week is 1% of your time has just poof, gone away. So you better hope that you're moving fast because that 1% sneaks up on you. <laughs> but I think having a good, uh, and I think a lot of people underestimate being actually getting good at coming up with a hypothesis or like coming up with ideas. It's like, okay, I think this is going to work and here's why. Because of something I read on the internet or like I'm talking to people on Reddit and like they're saying that they have this problem or now the camp that I sit in in entrepreneurship is like, dude, honestly, I only want to do things that I know work. Um, so it kind of sounds like that's what you guys kind of had. It was like, look, my cousin and co-founder like does this for a living. Like we know that these like treatments work. So like we can solve problems. It's just like, let's like just change the way that like people receive this so that more people can receive it at one time. And then, you know, you're basically like, enabling a better experience through tech and you know you guys are taking on more responsibility as the car as part of the healthcare experience so it's almost like a service business as it is like a treatment in some way um which is great so it's like okay i know this is going to work so it's like if once you know it's going to work then let me just put the reps in and the consistency and then raise my standard of care my standard of service like whatever it is for you and then it's like well at least i am not working on something that is maybe impossible or like, you know, like maybe like a hard tech thing or something like that. It's like, so I think, uh, I, you're absolutely right. I also think it's something you can practice like this whole, like hypothesize, validate, operationalize. I do think it's something you can practice. Um, and I think all the best founders, they have like this secret graveyard of projects that they don't talk about <laughs> because, you know, they didn't work for one reason or another. Um, you're saying, you know, you only want to work on things that will work or like are kind of known. I think any business can really only like each startup can only take on, you can either have product risk, like the innovation can be in the product, it can be in a new market, or it can be in the business model. Right. So I think those are like, you, you, I think those are the three things that you can kind of take a vast like chance on. Um, I think if you try and do both of them, like you try and create a new market with while also creating a new product it's going to be quite difficult. Um, not saying it's impossible, but it's probably really hard. Well, like that's something that big companies do because they have like the resources and like the bodies to like do both those things. Cause yeah, you, it's, it, it requires a lot of time and money to, to test yeah. both. Right. And it's like, you can get both and, right, but you really yeah. want to start like somewhere first and then kind of go out of that. And if you add a different product line, or like if you like are going to expand in different markets or both, um, like if you're Amazon or Facebook uh, or something like that, then. Yeah. But even they get it wrong sometimes, man. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. But it's like maybe they have a, maybe they have a higher likelihood of success. They can take more shots on goal with those different types. They can take a lot more shots on goal. That is for sure. I, I mean, I think Amazon has done it like, you know, people rag on Amazon and on Google for like killing their projects all the time. I think that's the right thing to do. 
why would you invest in something that's not working? Why would you keep doubling down on things that don't matter? Uh, so I think I like I think your graveyard, so to speak, should be something you're proud of instead of something you're ashamed by. For sure. Um, yeah. I think you should be adding to the graveyard every week. If you don't have like a business that's working, your graveyard should grow larger and larger and larger. When you find the thing that works, then it's like, okay, like let's get away from the graveyard and like now start planting some seeds and watering it. No, but you still have a, you still have a graveyard, right? Like it's just, it's just different. Like the things you're experimenting on are different. Every business has, I I don't know. I I might be wrong, but I think every business is like, if you're stagnant, you're going to die. It's just a question of how quickly are you dying? Um, that's good. I like that perspective. Yeah, maybe for like a graveyard of like business ideas or like th- right. different concepts and things I'm testing. And then you have shifted to more micro and go deep into the business that you're working on. Yeah, because like you might have found one thing that works, but then how do you like make it work even better? Right. Like so because um, you never know how long the the environment that you're operating in is going to stay that way. Maybe if you're like in a super regulated space. That's fair. Mm. I need to get into a super regulated space and then I can just rest on my laurels. That's what that means. <laughs> maybe on the next company or maybe this one. Since uh, you're in maybe. healthcare. We'll see. We are in healthcare. Dude, so when we were trying, we were like, okay, we have like contracts and then we're going to go and start exploring the uh, like uh, insurance route, like being a part of like a comp- like a plan. So basically the way it was broken down for me uh, for when we got in touch with people who like, had done this uh was like yeah that happens around series b dude so it's like it's a long time before you get there i was like man series b is like nine figure valuation close to 100 people like we're pretty far away from that let's just keep focusing on what we're doing right now um and then keep these relationships more as like an enterprise sales cycle which put that in perspective which was great but and that's also something that will kill your company too right like Maybe, maybe you don't have the runway to survive a eighteen month sales cycle. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe you do. But mind you, Akash, health plan sales cycles. <laughs> oh gosh. Are about oh, that gosh. long. We have to talk off podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about um, you. Kind of have here in the notes like how the very early stages of startups, kind of like pre seed seed, have changed recently. And then you kind of had like a note about how founders should kind of be approaching um, their companies kind of given the current change in situation for these like early stage. What, what do you mean by that? A startup is multiple things, right? Like a startup is a business which exists with its cash flows and its customers and its revenues. But it's also kind of like a, it, 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 it's an image that's put out into the world uh, so that it can raise funding right for from vcs a lot of the time and there was for a certain period of time you could say you know we don't have cash flows we don't have a business but we have an idea and we can just raise off of that idea and uh for whatever reason the the market the venture market was accepting of that and would invest in you just so that you could just like kind of play around with that idea and you could get raise millions of dollars as a completely fresh founder and do that um, and when I say fresh, I mean like first time founder. I think that that is not the case anymore. 
I could be wrong. There might be someone out there who is a first-time founder who's just really good at talking to VCs and closing like a $30 million valuation and raising $3 million on just an idea. But I feel like now there is a much more, there's a larger focus on demonstrating that you, you're on track to build a real business, more so in the seed stages. Um, so you might still be able to get like a hundred to $500,000 just like off an idea, but I don't think you're going to get three to 4 million without demonstrating some revenue, some traction, not even revenue, revenue is the wrong word, some traction, whatever that traction might be. Um, I mean, I could be wrong, but that's just generally my sense. I think that's what you should be doing as you're building a business anyway, is focusing on some North Star metric <laughs> that's going to be good for you so that you can survive without venture funding. But that's just how I approach company building. And are, I'm assuming because you took money from Y Combinator, y'all are on the fundraising kind of track and venture capital, if other venture capital investment, which y'all do or no? My the way my co-founder and I approached the company was we have to assume each round of funding is our last round of funding because I don't want a sour venture market to mean that our patients are abandoned. So for us, we're in a very lucky position where we can say, do we want it versus we absolutely need it. Nice. Um, but that just goes back to like, how have you approached building your company? If you've built your company as like, we either fundraise or we die and that is something you're comfortable with and it's an intentional choice, then more power to you. Uh, you know, for us, it had to be the other way because hmm. it's it's not the way we wanted to approach revolution, like changing healthcare. With uh, it, like it, it would be so backwards for us to say, "Hey, we're going to build a thousand times better experience, and then we're going to disappear." That's that's not who we are. That's not what we do here. <laughs> and, and if you don't mind sharing, how much money have you guys raised up to this point? We've raised two million dollars. Okay. Yeah, we just announced our fundraise a few weeks ago. Nice. That's excellent, man. Congrats yeah, on that. How long, how long did it take to, to raise that kind of cash in this environment? Was it hard? It took the right amount of time. <laughs> 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 it took the right amount of time. Uh, I love it. Hard is an interesting question because I think that goes back to, like, what are you as a company, right? If you have, you know, there's always going to be a company with, like, the right metrics that's going to be able to fundraise. Um if you're able to take if you're able to show incredible traction and incredible revenue, a VC is going to be foolish not to invest in you. Um, I also think like when you fundraise, it's about finding the right partner versus any partner. Does that make sense? Yes. Because uh, the wrong partner is going to make you not want to do it. <laughs> They're going to be a vampire on your energy, and that's not. So for us, it was all about just finding the right partner. And what we found out is because allergies are such a huge problem, there were people who deeply understood what we were trying to do. And they were able to say, I mean, I think the most obvious one was one of our VCs like listed off everything that would make us uninvestable. And then, and then they were like, yeah, but we're still gonna put money into you because I really like you as a team and I think you're the best team to execute on this problem. Um, and for someone to be that candid with us, that's something that was really important to me because I would rather have someone say like, hey, this is where your failure, this like, this is how your company gets into trouble and this is how you stay successful. I would rather have that than someone who just kind of isn't as invested. I kind of found that if a VC nices me to death, like they're not going to invest and it's only the VCs who are like, actually, they, they tell you, give it to you straight where it's like, okay, you should 
you should spend a lot more time with those guys trying to close those guys and like convincing them that you're the right um, company for them if that's something that aligns with like kind of your values and the mission of what you're trying to accomplish um, and I found that those are a lot more responsive otherwise the ones that nice you to death always ghost you it's like it's kind of wild um, at least that, that was, that's been my experience and experience of some of my other uh, friends who've recently done it yeah, the ghosting is just miserable. I don't think it's an acceptable... Like, personally, if I ever have a fund, I hope that's not something that I end up doing because I just think it feels way too bad. The best, actually, the best no, I still remember this. It was like a no, we don't think... Like, we're not comfortable with this business model. But they had a 10-point... Like, they had they had 10 reasons why, one, they weren't comfortable with it, and two, why they felt like, uh, you know, we were the wrong team. And I was like, ah, I'm on. I'm disappointed, but you gave me something to operate off of. You gave me a real data point. It's like when someone ghosts you, it's like there's no feedback there. And I think that's the worst thing. Um, yeah. I don't really understand how people get away with it, but maybe I will shortly. <laughs> there's no closure, man. I need the closure. This isn't a dating app, you know? Where's the, where's like the swipe to get? funding where's that i'd probably spend way too much time on an app which was like <laughs> would you commit five dollars to this idea and it was just like swipe right swipe left swipe right i don't know we should try it but is that is that one of your graveyard companies no i just know like well one i missed the entire like swiping on people concept because i've known my wife since before uh like the apps app dating became a thing that's fair <laughs> but uh, Good man, but Akash, what is your? You've given so much, like so many golden nuggets here, ranging across a bunch of topics. Like, what are you thinking about right now? That's like a, a good nugget that you'd impart to our listeners who maybe earlier founders or uh, aspiring. Get founders. good at storytelling, because at the end of the day, everything we do in life is storytelling. Hmm. So whether it's sale, like Jake, you and I were talking about being in sales, right? Like sales is storytelling, um, fundraising is storytelling. When your storytelling is a re like requirement for people to take a chance on you, and eventually someone has to take a chance on you, um, but then you actually have to deliver, right? Don't don't like oversell and then underdeliver. So, but uh, yeah, I like that. I, I I do feel like it's it's interesting how when we were raised almost to think the more the more complicated. The concepts you understand, the more complicated you can kind of characterize something, like the smarter you are. And then it actually comes down to know that the better you understand something, the more simply you can explain it. And like the more you can just make that relatable to anyone. Um, I still have trouble relating to my grandma what consultants do. <laughs> so I, I have some work to do there. But at the end of the, <laughs> at the, end of the day, um, I, I joke that we're smart people that businesses rent um, to, to help solve their problems. And it's like temporary, right? Um, but I like that storytelling, not just from the standpoint of like raising venture funds, but also winning over customers, right? And that's like marketing, and that's that's consumer loyalty, that's service, right? Like every yeah, storytelling. Yeah, I, I think you driven. really you 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 uncovered something really interesting there, which is like it's about your audience is what storytelling is really about. Like storytelling isn't about you; it's about yeah what your listener or who who you're presenting to what what do they want what are how, how do you get them interested 
How do you keep them interested? How do you speak in a language that's going to resonate with them? Uh, I think, you know, Carl, what is, it? is it Carl Sagan, who was like the incredible physicist who was able to distill these really complicated concepts down to like a, a 30 minute TV show. But then you know that he was probably able to go to these, um, these physics conferences and talk in like formulas that I can't even pronounce. <laughs> and that like, that's what it really is. Like, I think you did a great job explaining what consultants do to your grandmother, right? <laughs> like they're smart people for hire <laughs> for a temporary basis. I think that's pretty good. There you go. <laughs> it didn't satisfy my grandma, but I'm glad it satisfied somebody. <laughs> I'm sorry. Good luck with grand grand. <laughs> Oh, gosh, it was great. Um, great to have you on. I know we're kind of getting close to, to 8 p.m. here. Tom has a Bible study, so there's about to be hella people behind him kind of coming in and breaking bread and, and reading the Bible, doing all that good stuff. But, uh, man, you, you gave us a lot of stuff to think about. I loved that you kind of in the first half gave us all the cool stuff about, like, allergy, healthcare, all that great stuff. And then on the backside, you really kind of dug in and gave us some really great things to think about in terms of how to approach getting the business started, fundraising, how to run the business. And uh, couldn't thank you enough for, for coming on and, you know, speaking to us, giving, giving us some gold nuggets to really chew on and can't wait to uh, uh, see you again, man, track, track the process. We're going to, as you guys do stuff, we like to send updates for founders that we've interviewed in the past and say cool stuff that their companies have done. So we can't wait to do that with y'all. We know Linda's going to be a big deal. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on guys.